0: We're facing an inflection point in history, one of those moments where the decisions we make today are going to determine the future for decades to come. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. It's now almost three weeks since Hamas's 7th of October attack, Palestinian militants killing more than 1,400 Israelis, mostly civilians, many children, and taking more than 200 hostages back to Gaza. Since then, Israel's bombardment of Gaza has killed more than 7,000 people, also mostly civilians, thousands of children among them. Its blockade of the Strip has brought humanitarian disaster, the health systems collapsed, desperate shortages of food, water and fuel for electricity. Israel's delayed a full-scale ground invasion, but that still appears on the cards and could bring an even higher toll. This week, though, we're gonna zoom out a bit and reflect on the war's geopolitics. We heard up top US President Joe Biden talking about the Gaza war bringing about an inflection point in global affairs. Here he is again, this time linking Hamas's attacks and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, the assault on Israel echoes nearly 20 months of war, tragedy and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighbouring democracy, completely annihilate it. So what does the Gaza war mean for Ukraine? How is the US balancing its Middle East, Europe and, for that matter, Asia policies? How do Ukraine and Russia view what's happening in Gaza? And in the Middle East itself, how does the Gaza war impact some of the regional diplomacy that have been underway between Saudi Arabia and Iran, for example, or between Saudi and Israel? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast, Olya Olika, Crisis Group's Europe Central Asia Director, and Michael Hanna, Crisis Group's U.S. Programme Director. Olya, Michael, welcome on.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks
2: for having
0: So before we move to the Middle East, Olya, why don't we start with Ukraine and what's happening now on the front lines?
1: So the front lines in Ukraine look very much as they have looked for months from the standpoint of actual territory and who holds it. The Russians have held their defensive lines. The Ukrainians have not been able to push much past them, despite some fanfare a few weeks ago of having pressed through uh, one or two or however many lines of defense. Basically, the Russians continue to hold the territory that they held. The Russians have also launched a counter-counter-offensive um, in Abedievka in the Northeast. Uh, it does not seem to be going particularly well. The Ukrainians are holding. So, you know, it's uh, it's really very Groundhog Day from the sense of who controls what, from the sense of people dying, of course, and being wounded. A lot of people have lost lives and uh, been grievously wounded, both on the Russian and the Ukrainian side.
0: And there's yet no real sign that Ukrainians are going to be able to break through and break this Russian corridor through from the east to Crimea.
1: No, it's, it, look, it's ugly, attritional, positional, slow fighting. I think that's very frustrating for a lot of people. There's always this talk of, well, this weapon system make the difference. And the problem is that it's not that kind of war.
0: And for now, do Ukrainian military leaders feel they have the right weapons or enough of them?
1: No one ever feels they have enough weapons, right? That's, Normal. I would say that the real gaps continue to be ammunition. This is a super ammunition intense war, just the numbers of rounds getting fired on a regular basis are enormous. And this is one of the reasons that the United States decided over the summer to supply Ukraine with cluster munitions was simply that was a weapon type that was available and that fit in the weapon systems that the Ukrainians are using. So there's enough ammunition to hold but there's you know more ammunition would improve ukrainians odds of breaking through beyond that of course the weapon systems also they get older so you do need to replace them with time that's kind of a secondary issue and then of course there's the challenge of personnel always a continuing problem on whether you're going to have the pipeline of folks getting mobilized and moving to the front lines and you hear a lot of different stories from Ukraine on how that's going. I mean, obviously, so far, no huge obvious gaps, but also stories that, on the one hand, people who signed up to be mobilized over a year ago and never got called. And on the other hand, stories of people being uh, thrown into something they were unprepared for at the last minute because they just had personnel needs. So clearly, a system that could do with some reform.
0: And if we wind back to before, 7th of October, before the Hamas attacks, the bombardment of Gaza, there was a lot of debate about Western support for Ukraine. The sense that Moscow's strategy was really to wait it out and hope that Western politics would shift, Western backing for Ukraine would sort of dissipate. And particularly in the US, I mean, Europe gives a lot of money to Ukraine, but the vast majority of weapons, ammunition comes from the US, and this very vocal caucus among the Republicans opposing aid to Ukraine. And as a result, there was an aid package that wasn't getting through Congress. So where did those debates sort of stand before the 7th of October?
1: So I think it was kind of a continuing argument. It wasn't even that much of an argument, right? There's kind of, and I think Michael should probably jump in on this at some point, but look, there's a hardcore that does not think that the US should be supporting Ukraine. And then there's a broader group of people who think that there should just be more oversight and accountability, and a sense of where do these things go, who uses them, how do they use them, are we getting our money's worth? And I think that actually gets a lot of sympathy, including from Democrats. But you know, this question of whether the the hardcore was going to be able to in any way slow or stop aid, certainly people I talked to indicated that the administration felt pretty confident that it was going to get at least one, possibly two more big aid packages for Ukraine through.
2: Yeah, I mean, the dynamics in the House look different than the Senate. Clearly, the big issue is the House Republican caucus. And it's now both bound up with the House leadership uh, race um, and election year politics. And people have now taken positions somewhat dictated by Trump um, and what he has been saying on Ukraine and the way that filters down. And there are suggestions that this has become a kind of litmus test for Trump's support for potential nominees to be the Speaker of the House. And so the latest candidate, Mike Johnson from Louisiana, not somebody particularly well known, but notable that he Uh, did support the first Ukraine aid package, but has voted against all the others. And so what does that mean for Ukraine aid going forward? President Biden has tried to combine Ukraine and Israel aid and some other bits of aid, and we'll get into that, but there's no guarantee that this will remain intact.
0: So then when Hamas attacked on the 7th of October, Israel started bombing Gaza. The U.S. expressed its strong support for Israel How did sort of that affect Kiev's calculations? How worried were Ukrainian leaders by the escalation in the Middle East and the notion that the U.S. sort of getting drawn in there would weaken its focus on its support for for Kiev?
1: I mean, it was one of the first things Ukrainians asked me when the news came out when I was talking to folks in Kiev asked yes, what I thought about the situation, but I mean, the second question wasn't, what do you think this is going to do to support force? Is it going to distract people? Is it going to be bad for Ukraine? Um, This has settled out a bit. There's a lot of effort in Ukraine to point out Hamas links to Moscow and even to suggest that perhaps Russia was involved in planning the attack, which I think is a bit of a tough case to make. And I think the Ukrainians are Basically, just watching and waiting to see what happens. It certainly makes them nervous. They worry that resources and attention will be diverted. But, you know, they also don't have a lot of alternatives. What are they going to do about it? And I think what Zelensky's initial instinct was to show support for Israel, you know, offering to travel to Israel. He was rebuffed uh, by Netanyahu. So I think that's the other piece of it is uh, the Ukrainian desire to demonstrate that it's firmly in the Western camp, which actually is very much in line with Ukraine's foreign policy to this point, which is that it is uh, looking to Western states to support it, and it's willing to take some hits in the rest of the world to get that.
0: And in some ways, I mean, it's interesting, I mean, Netanyahu himself wasn't the biggest supporter of Ukraine, right? I mean, despite Israel's close ties to the US, he really hedged quite a bit over the past year and a half, was very reluctant to alienate Moscow.
1: Right. So yes, the Israelis also have a very strong relationship with Moscow. They have refused to send weapons to Ukraine. There are a lot of both Ukrainians and Russians in Israel, Russians who fled Russia after the full-scale invasion began because they no longer wanted to live in Russia, and Ukrainians who fled as refugees. But historically, Netanyahu especially has built a very positive relationship with Vladimir Putin. Now, what's interesting, of course, is even as Netanyahu has rebuffed Zelensky, Putin has not been all that warm to his old friend Bibi in that his response has not been to condemn the massacre carried out by Hamas uh, on the 7th. But a lot of both sides is coming from the Kremlin and also from the foreign ministry. A kind of a clear suggestion that they're standing with the Palestinians. And that is an actually a very clear effort to play to the world as a whole. And to say, look, unlike the West, we stand with the underdog against Western colonialism. And that's a really interesting shift in Russian policy because of this longstanding, very positive relationship with Israel.
2: And I mean, just to note, of course, that for Israel, the important facet of this is its freedom of operation in Syria. And Russia has basically given Israel a free pass to operate. And, you know, that has been in the background of all of this this discussion about Israel maintaining a kind of almost neutral stance and not coming out uh, basically on the side of the United States is this desire to maintain that freedom of operation And obviously notable that this continues. There was bombing of the uh, Aleppo airport yesterday. And so this has become a feature that is dependent on this kind of very close relationship between uh, Israel and, and Russia.
0: And just so listeners know, this is Russia over several years now allowing Israel to bomb basically Hezbollah or Iranian targets in Syria. But let's turn then to U.S. policy. And I want to talk about different aspects of it. I want to come to the bandwidth point in a moment, how the US is sort of factoring in its Ukraine efforts with what's happening in the Middle East. I also want to talk about the regional piece, US relations with Saudi Arabia in particular, attempts to push along these normalisation of Saudi relations with Israel. But could we start with the immediate US response to the Hamas attacks? Initially, strong expressions of support for Israel, and those are continued, but gradually what's crept into US rhetoric is some sense of discomfort at the way the Gaza bombardment is going, the human cost, questions about what the end game is, and some real concerns about the risks of escalation.
2: Yeah, I think we've seen a gradual evolution. I think first and foremost, this is a policy driven by the president. Even during the Obama administration, he seemed to always counsel holding Israel tight as a way to gain confidence and perhaps extract concessions. I think the other piece of it is... The kind of scale and brutality of the Hamas attack put the United States in a position of not wanting to demonstrate any daylight between Israel and the United States. Uh, one of kind of wholesale support for the region that looked like a blank check. We know that in private there have been discussions of international humanitarian law about protection of civilians, but you know we didn't see much of that in public until later when the air war really intensified. And so we've seen gradual shifts over time. I think, yes, we've seen a lot of reporting about U.S. unease, about Israeli planning or the lack thereof. And of course, we're in a pause at the moment. We've been anticipating um, this imminent ground offensive, and it seems to be delayed. We can uh, assume that that's partly because of U.S. signals. But there is a palpable sense of unease about where this is going. Secretary of State Blinken made mention for the very first time of uh, humanitarian pauses. There hasn't been talk of ceasefire, but we're in a moment of uncertainty about what next. And the other bit of U.S. policy has been uh, deterrence and and quite firm signaling About regional conflict, uh, trying to avoid it. Um, And that signaling has gone both ways, both to the Israelis and to others in the region, Hezbollah, Iran in particular. You know, the United States wants to avoid a multi front conflict that could bring it into the fight directly. At the same time, its deterrence is built upon uh, sending signals that it would be willing to enter that fight. Um, And it has surged various US military assets into the region to make clear those signals.
0: And Michael, on the risks of regional escalation, I don't know if you agree with this, but all sides seem to be caught in a position where none of them want an escalation. So the US clearly doesn't want a regional war. Israel doesn't want to open up another front in northern Israel with Hezbollah. It's not clear that Iran wants a big escalation right now, at least that's the assumption, that Iran sees Hezbollah's rockets as a security guarantee, it doesn't really want to give that up for Gaza. A regional war generally would be ruinous for everyone. And yet both sides believe that they have to show they're willing to escalate to, you know, in their eyes, deter the other side. I mean, you see that very clearly in Biden's rhetoric. And in that sense, you know, although no one wants things to escalate, the danger seems quite high.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm always hesitant to mirror image and assume we know what's happening in the thinking of others, that mutual deterrence is rational and logical and uh, regional war would be ruinous and hence nobody would want it. We see that, you know, mutual deterrence didn't hold in Gaza. And that was a long running assumption of Israeli leaders, I think, at this point. And, you know, you get to another piece of this, and that is miscalculation. Um, You know, the rules of engagement between Israel and Hezbollah, for instance, have held. But it's easy to imagine ways in which that spins out of control. We've seen, um, you know, an uptick in in strikes against U.S. personnel and assets in, in Syria and Iraq. Again, it's it's easy to imagine that escalating. Even the Houthis have launched uh, missiles that uh, were presumably intended for Israel. Um, so there are multiple ways in which escalation could happen through miscalculation, even if the parties themselves are intent on avoiding such an outcome.
0: Michael, how much do you think that U.S. thinking about its Middle East policy, uh, what's happening in the Middle East is shaped by its sort of calculations about ukraine and in fact not just ukraine i mean the u.s is also keen to maintain the balance of force in asia particularly keen to ensure that it deters china from any you know potential military action in taiwan i think that's probably unlikely anytime soon but it's certainly still a concern for washington how much is this sense of of sort of bandwidth or overstretch how much is this a factor in u.s thinking do you think
2: I don't know if we've gotten to the point of thinking very much about what those trade-offs look like in terms of assets and posture in Europe and and Asia, but what's clear is that this administration has been very focused on sort of dialing back kind of U.S. military posture and and U.S. military operations, obviously most pronouncedly in uh, the drawdown in Afghanistan, and entering into a major Middle East conflict uh, heading into an election year is not anything that any political leader would go seeking for. Um, And of course, there is a a public element to this because that question of overstretch and fatigue has filtered into public views and I think partly informs um, some public thinking around U.S. assistance to Ukraine. But there is a sense that the United States has been Uh, engaged in um, a kind of militarized foreign policy for a very long time to pretty unsure effect. And I think that does shape a lot of public thinking about the prospect of a major US military engagement in this region again.
0: So Washington and other Western capitals have spent a lot of the past year and a half worrying about why much of the rest of the world has been sort of half-hearted in supporting Ukraine, despite you know, Russia's clear aggression against, uh, against its neighbour. And without going into too much detail here, I mean, we've talked a lot about it on previous episodes. But broadly speaking, and recognising there's a lot of divergence from place to place, many countries have been prepared to sign up to UN General Assembly resolutions condemning Russia's invasion. But they've been reluctant to do much more than that. Certainly reluctant to join Western sanctions against Russia, generally quite cautious about what they've said publicly about the war, cautious about alienating Russia. Now, a lot of that owes to the fact that they just don't see it in their interests to take too strong a position. They don't like Western sanctions. They think the sanctions have contributed to the commodities crisis, to hikes in food prices, fuel, fertilizer prices. Many countries don't want to stop trading with Russia. They don't want to have to choose between Russia or for that matter, China and the West. So a lot of the way capitals have responded to the Ukraine war is based around their leaders' perceptions of their own interests. But a theme running through views in much of the rest of the world has been this sense of double standards, that the West's expressions of outrage about what's happening in Ukraine, even though in this case they're justified, they ring hollow given the West's own track record in Iraq, in Libya and other places, And also in the Western capitals have traditionally been much quieter about Israel's occupation and in calling on Israel to respect international humanitarian law in Gaza than they are when they talk about Russia's violations of international humanitarian law. And that anger at the West and that sort of sense of grievance at the West has really been exposed to Ukraine's cost over the past 18 months. I mean, how much do you think Biden officials worry about that or that shapes that the way that they're responding to what's happening in gaza
2: you know the double standards accusation is obviously not new it's something the united states has operated with for a long time it is the baggage it carries into the region and it has been able to operate and uh, cultivate uh, relationships despite that Um, it's clearly an issue Uh, it's one that u.s diplomats are cognizant of there's been a major push, uh, particularly with respect to Ukraine, to try to bridge some of those gaps with the global south that has been uh, skeptical. You saw early on when uh, the United States was really pointing to this question about Russian annexation of Ukrainian territory, then the uh, Middle East and, and others Pointing the, to the, to the Golan Heights and, you know, the U.S. recognition of Israeli annexation of Syrian territory during the Trump administration, a step that hasn't been reversed by the Biden administration. Um, and so, you know, this is an accusation of longstanding and is going to be a further diplomatic challenge, both in terms of how the United States is going to deal with the immediate Gaza war, but also in terms of how it is going to engage with um, the rest of the world on Ukraine. This issue of double standards, uh, we will likely see it again in the, in the UN General Assembly debate that is to come. And of course, the US uh, veto of the Security Council resolution pushed by Brazil, you know, has put a spotlight on how isolated the US is uh, in terms of, of its position on this conflict.
0: We heard President Biden up top comparing Israel's struggle against Hamas with Ukraine's struggle against Russia. And obviously not glossing over in any way the horror of what Hamas did on the 7th of October, but to sort of implicitly compare Israel's blockade and bombardment of Gaza to Ukraine's fight against Russia's aggression, it seems unlikely that much of the world is going to buy that, right? I mean, is there a danger for Biden in trying to make the argument that way? And, And do you think sort of concretely that US policy on Israel Palestine will impact the support it can later muster for Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the United States has made a, a moral case, uh, a principled case uh, uh, for for its position in both conflicts. It has in fact linked them in Biden's, you know, public speech and yes, everybody has double standards and the United States is is not alone, but you know, uh, when you lead with morality, when you lead with principle, that hypocrisy—you um, know—there is you know, there's a light that is shined upon that, and I think it does matter for for regional opinion, um, and and I mean regional public opinion, not just leaders. When It feels as if, you know, there is a a huge gap in terms of how these standards are being applied. And, you know, how Israel conducts this war, how the United States uh, positions itself, um, it matters for how um, the region and others in the world understand what's going on in the conflict. There is a broader point about receptivity to U.S. messages, both on Ukraine and, and Gaza. The United States, along with the Ukrainians, spent some time trying to repair this gap this huge divide that they sense that emerged after the the Russian invasion of Ukraine when they looked around and apart from, you know, their European allies and a few others, um, the rest of the world reacted differently. And I think that was shocking in some ways. They looked to their Arab partners and, you know, they obviously were trying to hedge and that was a bit of a wake up call. And the United States has dedicated a lot of time since to trying to address concerns of the global south and um, trying to remedy this sense of, uh, of neglect and double standards. And and clearly this, this current moment isn't going to help in that effort.
0: Let's turn then to Russia and how Moscow is looking at things in the Middle East. And earlier, you mentioned earlier Russian leaders condemning Israel's bombardment of Gaza, much of its rhetoric, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in particular, his rhetoric really playing to the global south, support for Palestinians. But beyond that, how much advantage do you think Russia sees in a regional escalation?
1: So I think for Moscow, it's uh, being viewed as an opportunity. You see the unwillingness to give the Israelis very much but instead looking to the Arab states, looking to the rest of the world, trying to make a case that uh, Russia is on the side of the world as a whole against the United States and Europe and Israel. Now, I don't think that a broader war is in Russia's interests, but you know, even there, you could see increases in oil prices and so forth that Russia could benefit from. And certainly, Look, Russia has a foreign policy concept that is all about weakening the United States and weakening Washington's alliances and partnerships. If this helps with that, then it's a boon. This said, when Russia tried to negotiate with Hamas uh, to get Russian national hostages freed, it failed, which I think is uh, kind of an interesting side note to this that there are real limits to what Russia can do. Uh, that will also become visible through this. But overall, I think for Moscow, they'd like to ride this. And if it does distract the United States, if it does limit the amount of weapons that the Americans uh, can send to Ukraine, fantastic. The Russians have been looking to US presidential elections as kind of their lodestar for when uh, Western support to Ukraine will break, and then the Ukrainians will be forced to capitulate. But if something happens to make it come sooner, then they'll take it.
0: Could we just talk a little bit about Russia's relations to Iran? Um, They've obviously gotten much closer since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. They're both under U.S. sanctions. Iran has sent weapons, drones to Russia, uh, which Russia is using in Ukraine. That's come at a very high cost to Iran's relations in Europe. We talked about this on the podcast before, but it's not really clear that Russia could actually push Iran into something that Tehran itself is not interested in, right?
1: I think that uh, Russia has very limited leverage over Iran because it needs Iranian support and Iranian drones. And again, this, this is a really interesting dynamic where Russia wants to position itself as the vanguard of the world as a whole against the US-led West. But what's really going to become visible is that Russia can't actually get anybody else to do very much. Now, does anyone care about that? I don't know. To some extent, uh, unwillingness to cut ties with Russia doesn't have to do with Russian influence. It has to do to a certain extent with trade. And it has to do with the ability to point to something else other than the United States, uh, even if it's not that effective. So I think for Moscow, this is an opportunity, but it's an opportunity with some real constraints.
2: It's always dangerous to read new axes of evil into um, current events. And there's an effort to do that, particularly in the United States. Clearly, Sanctions and the war effort and, and the limitations that has created for Russia have pushed this unlikely military partnership forward in ways that I think were unimaginable at the start of the war in Ukraine. But, you know, it is tactical, right? It is a worrisome development for a lot of observers, including the United States. Um, but there's a danger in, in reading too much into the strategic s- significance that sees all of these events as moving in, in, in lockstep, when in fact, what it looks like is Russia being forced to turn to a very unlikely source uh, in Iran for drone technology um, out of need because of the state of their military industrial base and, and, and the squeeze that comes from sanctions.
0: And Michael, so the Saudis, Saudi Arabia, and when it comes to normalization question, what the war what the Gaza war means for US efforts to get Saudis to re-establish relations with Israel. Uh, I want to come to that in a moment. But before that, the Saudis and Iran have recently gone some way to repair their relations. I mean, we've talked about this in depth on the show before, this recalibration of Saudi policy aimed at dialing back tension with Iran. So there was this deal brokered by China earlier this year, and that still seems to be moving forward. I mean, I think Crown Prince... Mohammed bin Salman met President Raisi, Iranian president, in the last few weeks, so after the Hamas attack. I mean, how much of a check against a regional escalation is that Saudi-Iran channel?
2: I think it is useful in terms of um, having clear communications between Saudi and Iran. I think it's useful in terms of uh, maybe at the margins helping with escalation risks. It could help um, in Yemen, for instance. I'm very doubtful that this channel in and of itself can, um, can be a big factor in terms of the broader risks for, for regionalized conflict. A Saudi-Iran channel uh, is not going to be able to tame those forces. Uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, particularly decisive in terms of how Hezbollah, say, uh, on, on a potential nor- northern front, is thinking about this conflict.
0: Alongside these Saudi efforts to repair its relations with Iran, you also had Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman seemingly moving towards this normalisation deal with Israel. Now, the deal tends to be presented as though sort of the whole thing was about Saudi-Israeli relations. But in some ways, it was also a US response to Saudi hedging on Ukraine, Saudis getting closer to China. You know, it was about the US giving... Riyadh security guarantees in exchange, not only for Saudi normalization with Israel, but also that Riyadh would distance itself in some ways from Beijing. So I guess the first question is sort of, is there any chance of a deal between the US and Saudi Arabia, the security guarantees in exchange for, you know, sort of Saudis coming more firmly into the US camp, stopping hedging with China, with Russia? Is there any chance of a deal along those lines without the Saudi normalization with Israel going ahead?
2: So, I mean, I think it's, it's right to look at this as, a, a, as something much broader than simply Saudi-Israel uh, normalization. Obviously that um, got a lot of the attention, but at the core of it was um, this uh, imperative being driven by great power competition um, and trying to lock in Saudi on the U.S. side of that competition, concerns about uh, China and, you know, Saudi hedging has come to the fore in the aftermath of the Russian um, invasion of, of Ukraine. And, you know, the lens of great power competition is really the way in which much of U.S. foreign policy is being filtered. And so, you know, there are these questions about security guarantees, about nuclear cooperation and some reciprocal guarantees uh, or pledges on, on the Saudi side having to do with, uh, you know, dollar denomination of the oil markets and um, technological limits in terms of their relationship uh, with China. Um, and those are all critically important. It's hard to see a deal Standing that is bilateral, you know, Saudi has uh, considerable baggage in the United States. Uh, even a, a trilateral arrangement would have been quite controversial. Um, but politically, a bilateral deal uh, always seemed hard to imagine. Um, and frankly, the United States really is committed to this idea of of integration and normalization. Right? It is a it is seen as a good uh, in and of itself to pursue.
0: And do you think a deal along the lines that sort of appeared to be envisaged before the 7th of October, so similar to the deals with the Emirates and Bahrain and, and others that, you know, basically saw the Saudis normalise relations with Israel, but without Israel really offering much to Palestinians? I mean, is that type of deal you think still on the table after the Gaza war?
2: Yeah, I mean, the big question at the heart of all of this was the Palestinians and their future and what the Saudis could accept. Um, Netanyahu was aggressively pushing the idea that normalization could proceed with very little uh, in terms of concessions for the Palestinians and that the Israelis could continue in terms of their current trajectory without offering anything on, on the Palestinian file. That becomes harder now. But before we get to discussion about normalization, I think the immediate is really uh, front and center for for Saudi. And uh, they are, as would the rest of the region, quite concerned about regionalized conflict. And not just in Gaza, but frankly, in terms of what spillover might mean for neighboring countries. I think there's Real serious concern in Saudi um, and elsewhere about stability uh, in Egypt uh, and Jordan, and so I think um, there is real serious concern about what this conflict might mean for for the rest of uh, for the rest of the region.
0: And Michael, just quickly, as you mentioned Egypt, on the one hand, the, it's the route through the Rafah crossing for humanitarian aid into Gaza. Also, this pressure, or at least there was this pressure initially to allow Egypt to let Palestinians fleeing Gaza through Cairo, reluctant to do that
2: so you know I think Egypt comes at this with both principled motivations and and of course naked uh, self interest you know for for many years, the great fear of the Egyptian security sector is that uh, you know Israel would eventually adopt a three state solution uh, which uh, would push the problem of Gaza onto Egypt and perhaps the problems of, of the West Bank onto Jordan, and that this would obviate the need for uh, a Palestinian state. Um, and of course, loose talk about transfer, uh, which we have seen again, the talk of pushing the Palestinian population of Gaza into Sinai rings a lot of alarm bells in Cairo.
0: Well, especially as you had members of Netanyahu's cabinet before the war sort of openly floating the idea of expelling the Palestinians.
2: Yeah, um, exactly. It is resonant. The idea of transfer, number one, is resonant in Palestinian history. Um, You know, the the Nakba and uh, the refugee crisis is at the core of Palestinian identity. And so it's not just Egypt that is not interested in uh, seeing a, a mass transfer of Palestinians from Gaza to North Sinai, it's Jordan with its own concerns about transfer, um, and the Palestinians themselves talking about the necessity that they can remain on their land. And so Egypt has been pushing for humanitarian assistance on the other side of the Gaza border at Rafah, and that's been a big struggle. And the Israelis are are refusing at this point to allow in fuel um, there's been the beginning of some uh, humanitarian assistance trickling in, uh, but it's really a, a absolute drop in the bucket compared to the need and While we haven't seen people uh, flowing over that border, you know, it's reasonable to assume that we will see some injured coming from Gaza into egypt and there has been mass displacement in Gaza already. You know, the Israeli, the initial evacuation order telling Gazans to move from north-central Gaza to the south uh, was an order that if implemented would have affected maybe 1.2 million uh, Palestinians. And so, you know, this this issue of displacement, it is one really of, of huge concern to Egypt and the rest of the region. And
0: Egypt's relations with Hamas, so President Sisi, when he sees power, about a decade ago, brutally suppressed the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Traditionally, no love lost for Hamas. But Cairo's position has sort of evolved over time.
2: Yeah, Egypt has become more pragmatic um, in, you know, in the immediate post-coup world. uh, Egypt's regional policy was was an extension of its domestic policy. And so... It harbored the idea that uh, not only could it crush the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in Egypt, which it continues to do, but it could do so regionally in Libya and in Gaza. And as Egypt came to understand that some kinds of uh, communication were going to be necessary to protect their own interests, uh, they began to soften. Not necessarily their core views about Hamas, but about the necessity of engaging with them uh, having channels of communication with them. And and that's where we effectively find ourselves, uh, a kind of uneasy uh, relationship, uh, but one that Egypt sees as necessary to protecting its own national interests.
0: And Michael, do you think the barbarity of what Hamas did on 7th of October will change views about the group in the region, not just in Egypt, but also, let's say, in Turkey or Qatar, places traditionally more supportive of political Islam, of the Muslim Brotherhood? I mean, Hamas, of course, has its office in Doha, uh, Qatar, seemingly very involved in talks about getting hostages released.
2: I think at some level, I mean, I think it, it's too soon at this point for a kind of reconsideration. But Hamas is obviously a different beast than I think people understood. Um, and, you know, the leaders of the region have no love lost for uh for hamas uh and so i think there is going to be some kind of reckoning there uh it's hard to see that in the midst of the ongoing uh, escalation in gaza and and the current focus on uh palestinian suffering and pa- palestinian civilian casualties i do think there will come a point when there will be some reflection about uh what happened on october 7th i just don't think it's going to happen in in the current heat of uh, heat of the moment.
0: So let's come back then to what all this means for Ukraine, the fact that the U.S. is now focused also on the Middle East, as well as being sort of pivotal to Ukraine's war efforts in Europe. Michael, you mentioned earlier that the Biden administration has tried to tie up some of the aid for Ukraine with other defense spending, including aid to Israel, to link the two. Now, of course, Republicans control the House, they can try to split up those bills. But do you think this sort of linking the Ukraine aid to the Israel aid, do you think that's going to make it easier to get support for Ukraine through?
2: Clearly, the Biden administration wants to make this a kind of collective effort and trying to put not just Ukraine, but some specific spending, border security uh, and assistance to, to Israel. And again, if this came up for a straight vote, it would be approved. But new House uh, leadership uh, among Republicans could split this up. And that is uh, the call from uh, key Republican lawmakers. So clearly, the U.S., the Biden administration is trying um, to make this uh, one vote. Uh, It it would increase the chances of its success. Uh, But there's no real guarantee that it's going to come up in this form.
0: And the caucus of Republicans that are opposed to the Ukraine aid, they generally support military aid to Israel?
2: Absolutely. That's an easy sell in Congress. It's not going to face much opposition, and hence why some of those opposed to Ukraine assistance want to split them up. They want to pass more assistance to Israel at the current juncture, and they're not that interested in Ukraine assistance.
0: And in Kiev, among Zelensky and his cabinet, the military, these debates about Western funding, US attention being drawn to the Middle East, you know, those are seen as more a long term challenge or something that's actually affecting battlefield calculations now?
1: Look, we're not, if, if Congress does not vo- vote this new aid package, that does not mean that aid to Ukraine stops, right? The United States has a lot of additional aid that's already in the pipeline. Not everything that has been, um, already committed has been delivered. All of this, and there are mechanisms other than this specific bill that enable the United States to provide assistance to Ukraine. And in addition to that, there's the European assistance to Ukraine. So it's not as though if this, uh, you know, if this bill doesn't go through, then it's all over for the Ukrainians. So, no, they're thinking about this for the long term of how much they can count on the United States and what kind of United States assistance they can expect and what they need to be looking to other allies and partners for, etc. They're not thinking that if this fails, it's the end.
0: Olya, Michael, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks, Richard.
0: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on the latest from Gaza on the Ukraine war on our website crisisgroup.org you can also follow us on Twitter or X at Crisisgroup. Group thanks to our producers Kevin Murphy Heiko Schaub and thanks of course to all of you our listeners please do get in touch podcasts at crisisgroup.org you can also write to me directly outward at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions suggestions or concerns if you like the show please do say something nice about us leave us a five star rating or a review we've tried as I said up top to look at the bigger picture this week We may well zoom back into what's happening in Gaza next time. We've also got episodes planned soon on Sudan, on the Sahel, the latest from Venezuela, probably also something on the South Caucasus, the standoff between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So please do join us again next time.